Before we begin, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. In particular, a huge debt of thanks to our cabinet member level supporter, Arlena Frank-Waller. Your support is critical to the success of this podcast. Another thank you is owed to our ambassador-level supporters, Jeff Flores and Todd Kent. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. Together, we are reaching the top government podcast charts in countries ranging from Europe to Asia, and we are just getting started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Diplomatist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today I am honored to be joined by a very special guest from the Miriam Institute, Mr. Benjamin Anthony, who is the co-founder. Benjamin, it is an absolute honor to have you on the New Diplomatist Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to chat with you today. I appreciate you coming on board. And perhaps you can give a brief background for the listeners of how you came to found the Institute and your work inside of this field. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as you've already mentioned, my name is Benjamin. I'm a sergeant in the Israel Defense Forces today. I'm a reservist. In fact, I actually think that I'm retired from the Israel Defense Forces because reservists age out in the state of Israel at around the age of 40, and I'm now 41. So unless there is some sort of an emergency scenario whereby everybody with combat capabilities is called to the line, I've probably had my fill of my days in uniform. Prior to the founding of the Miriam Institute, I actually founded an organization called Our Soldiers Speak. And I did that at the conclusion of the Second Lebanon War in 2006, in which I had a full participation as a combat soldier. When I returned back into the States of Israel from various placements and operations and excursions into southern Lebanon during the second Lebanon war of 2006, I was immediately told by my captain to go over and sit for interview with a reporter from the Times of London. And I reluctantly agreed to do so. But it turned out that that reporter from the Times of London garrison was seeking to hear from soldiers who had been inside the war zone and were able to talk about their experiences therein without politics, without political dimensions being added to the conversation, I saw much to my surprise how this reporter was willing and ready to listen to my viewpoints. And at that point, I decided that there was a real need for this on a much larger scale. And so I founded Our Soldiers Speak. And that organization went on to become the only organization since the founding of the State of Israel that brought senior ranked uniformed active officers of the Israel Defense Forces and other senior ranked personalities from the Israel Defense Establishment to present professional lectures and presentations and seminars on the preeminent graduate campuses throughout the English-speaking world. And through that vehicle, we reached more than 450 campuses during our existence. We undertook our work very proudly, and we were the sole organization to do that since the founding of the State of Israel. And I want to repeat that we were the sole organization to do that since the founding of the State of Israel. And in 2020, 
we decided that we wished to morph into the Miriam Institute. So we stopped the work of our soldiers speak and we morphed into the Miriam Institute. And the Miriam Institute is a forum through which the left, centre and right of the mainstream of opinion when it comes to the state of Israel and her place among the nations can put forward their viewpoints, can exchange their viewpoints, can debate their viewpoints, can do so respectfully and where the consumer, the reader, the listener, the viewer, and when the world is turning, the attendees of our live events can come together and hear a diverse range of opinions by committed friends and supporters of the State of Israel, hailing from individuals who have had a hand in the crafting of policy from the State of Israel, and where those listeners, viewers, supporters and attendees of our events can actually make up their own mind based on a range of Israeli viewpoints as to what might be the best means of attaining the best future for the state of Israel. We're very, very proud of the work of the Institute, and we have several key initiatives ranging from written commentary to webinars to podcasts that you can download from wherever you download a podcast to a robust social media presence and, of course, elite and select trips for the very best students from around the world to the State of Israel and also select trips for cadets and future officers of the United States Armed Forces, ranging from the service branch of the Army, Navy, Air Force and U.S. Marine Corps. And we bring those future defenders of the United States to Poland for two days to tour some of the death camps in Poland and then on to the State of Israel for a 12 tour of the country. So that's the work of the Miriam Institute. Wow, what wonderful work it is and very innovative, as you mentioned, many of it being groundbreaking in its scope and its outlook on the subjects. In fact, I'm a little bit jealous having never traveled to the Holy Land myself. I would one day enjoy seeing it. Pivoting towards... But the... you, should, you should apply for the tour. <laughs> I might just do that. And, I might just do that. You should do and I can assure you we will view your application with high favor. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate the invite. But, you know, I do want to discuss the various topics related to this because this is obviously a geopolitical subject. It's a cultural subject, and it is, in many respects, a religious subject as well, because the state of Israel is a national home for the Jewish people, for those who have immigrated there, and also a symbol of it globally, I would say. And this is very personal for you. Uh, you yourself, I believe, were born in Britain. Is that correct, sir? That's correct. I was born in Britain, and I was raised as an Orthodox Jew. I'm, I'm no longer an Orthodox Jew, Garrison, but I'm a very proud Jew. And I'm also a religious Jew, but I'm not observant, which may seem like a contradiction, but in actual fact, I think I can reconcile those two descriptions if given the opportunity to do so. I'm very informed by my religious upbringing. My religious upbringing absolutely is intrinsic to my viewpoints about the future of the states of Israel. I'm not particularly into what I would call prescribed religious practice or prescribed religious ritual, but my Jewish background absolutely is central to how I view the state of Israel at the moment and how I view Israel's future prospectively as well. So I was born in the UK, in, in Great Britain. At the age of 14, I saw my older brother beaten almost, almost to death by way of an anti-Semitic attack at 8.30 in the morning in the year 1994. So that was physical anti-Semitism that I witnessed. As a result of that attack, 
my brother became extremely unwell and he had to undergo three liver transplants in one week as a result of the deterioration in his health. He's alive today. I'm and very I'm glad to, to hear say that. He's, yeah. he's, thank you. I'm, and I'm pleased to say that he's married and he has a child and he practices law and he is someone whose resilience I, I draw inspiration from. But he's never known a day of good health since that moment. That mm. was physical anti-Semitism. I then experienced academic anti-Semitism when I enrolled in my studies at the University of Manchester and had to fight against campaigns to equate Zionism with racism and even on occasion Zionism with Nazism. Obviously a dreadful canard. Yes, and then <laughs> I also saw political anti-Semitism in the United Kingdom. And I, I realized and recognized that there was no real bright future for Anglo Jewry. I believe there's only one place where a Jew is truly safe because they're Jewish rather than in spite of the fact that they're Jewish. And that place is the States of Israel. And so after graduation, I moved to the State of Israel. I drafted as what's called a lone soldier into service and I had the privilege of serving in the Israel Defense Forces as a heavy machine gunner between the years 2005 and 2007. And that would have brought you into service during the Second Lebanon War, am I correct? That's absolutely right. I would say that the seminal event in my military service was the Second Lebanon War. It was the first war in which I participated. It's where I saw the cost of war, where I saw the realities of war, where I experienced the ugliness of war and also the beauty of war. There are many, many events that take place in a wartime theatre that are not replicated in civilian society because the walls and the barriers and the guardrails that we all erect around us daily during our day-to-day -day interactions, those all come tumbling down in wartime and there's just a great deal of candor, a great deal of frankness. People are willing to show their fears, their courage, their happiness, their sadness, their tragedy and their jubilation in a way that's not replicated in civilian life. So war is one of those dynamics whereby there's tremendous, as I said, ugliness, there is tremendous suffering, there's great difficulty and challenge, but there is also tremendous beauty and tremendous romance not in, in the terms of relationships, but it's a very romantic scene to see a group of men looking down line, all in service of one cause and a virtuous cause of that, namely the preservation of the state and the people of Israel. Rarely does a man get the opportunity to take part in something so clear-cut as that during one's civilian life. Wartime will give you that opportunity. And, you know, you mentioned that phrase virtuous cause, which really struck me when you said it. And in many respects, I'm I'm struck by the notion that your life in many regards parallels a certain aspect of the formation or should I say the reformation of the state of Israel in the 1940s, because there was a significant degree of anti-Semitism. Obviously, it's it's widely known because of the Holocaust that Europe was incredibly hostile, not to mention the influence of Soviet communism. But even within Britain at the time, these are long-standing issues across nations. And yet we do have the example of people such as Winston Churchill, who self-identified as a, as a proud Zionist, pushed for the recreation of the state of Israel with the Balfour Declaration and so on. And you yourself hailing from his home country and moving to the fruition of that dream, reestablishing the hope state is very much, I believe, a virtuous cause. What has been one of the biggest perspectives on your life making that transition into 
into a new state because in so many ways Israel is a beautiful dichotomy because it's actually a fairly young modern state but it is an ancient state at the same time what was it like transitioning from Britain you've known your whole life to that state and then going immediately into the, the security and the service of it to that cultural shift how, how did that feel well the reality of the matter is that to go back to the heart of your question or the, or the premise of your question, while I appreciate some of the parallels that you've drawn, and I think that those are accurate, I think that everybody should draw hope from the fact, Garrison, that there will be no Holocaust as long as there is a state of Israel. Indeed. And had there been a state of Israel during the time of the Nazi Holocaust, I believe it would have been averted. And I believe it would have been avoided. Now, at no point should anybody be under the false impression that the existence of the state of Israel is justified by the horrors of the Holocaust. But certainly its existence acts as a bulwark against another Holocaust occurring. Indeed. Indeed. And I hope that, that that's clear. And I'd be happy to speak more about that if you wish. In terms of the cultural shift, I will share with you that it's rather a bizarre anomaly that I underwent because the vast majority of people I, would, I think would speak to the idea that they felt deeply unfamiliar when they moved from the country of their birth to the country of their birthright. So, for example, an American might say that when they left the United States to join the Israel Defense Forces, it was a huge culture shift and even an uncomfortable one. A French Jew may say the same thing, a Spanish Jew may say the same thing, and many British Jews may say the very same. I cannot say that that's true. I never felt that I belonged in the United Kingdom. Mm. Now, I don't know precisely why that is, but I would suggest that having seen the anti-Semitism that befell my brother, and there were myriad examples of anti-Semitism garrison prior to the beating that I spoke about earlier that befell my brother Jonathan. But having lived a life that was touched heavily by anti-Semitism regularly and often, I was always of the view that I am the other. I'm not quite British. I'm not quite mm. accepted as being British. Mm. But I also wasn't quite accepted as being a standard British Jew. You know, British Jewry very much has the attitude of not standing up for their Jewish identity. They have a different way of managing anti-Semitism, which is basically to keep their heads down, not make too much noise, mm. keep quiet and hope that the challenges of the day will pass over them. That was not my personality. That was not my viewpoint. I was always willing to, to fight, sometimes physically, sometimes verbally, sometimes as a student, sometimes by way of my writings and sometimes by way of my making of speeches. And when I came to the States of Israel, and I realized that there was absolutely no reason ever again to be fearful because I'm a Jew. When I realized that forever would there be a military that defends my home because I'm a Jew and because I'm resident in the Jewish state, when I realized that I would have the opportunity to play my own very, very small role in the defense of the state of Israel as a soldier of the Israel Defense Forces, I felt instantly at home. And in fact, mm. I... I will give you just one example, Garrison, without wishing to belabor the point. When I was a child growing up as an Orthodox Jew in the UK, I was told, along with all of the male kids in my family, 
that we were to wear baseball caps in the public thoroughfare in order to hide our Judaism, that we were not to wear the skull cap or the yarmulke or the head covering that is the traditional dress of Orthodox Jewish people. And so I look back from time to time on photographs taken from childhood excursions that I would go on with my father. And in those photographs, I, I could see that effectively... As a result of all seven of the males in my family, my father and his six sons, including me, effectively wearing those baseball caps was the wearing of the first uniform that we'd ever donned. And it was the uniform of a frightened, furtive, hidden Jew. It was the uniform of a Jew who could not demonstrate his Judaism outwardly, who could not show outwardly that which he was inwardly, a Jew and a proud Jew. When I went to Israel, however, and I had the privilege of being drafted into the IDF and I went into the drafting office and then went off to my first day of basic training, I had to put on the uniform of the Israel Defense Forces. And as I looked at myself in the mirror, made sure that my shirt fit and that my slacks fit and that my boots fit and that I was ready for inspection, just for that moment, I became awash with the sensation that finally I was able to reconcile my inner feelings, my inner convictions, that of being a proud Jew with my outer appearance, that mm. of being a Jew willing to play his role in the defense of the one and only Jewish state. It was a wonderful sensation. And I actually have never felt anything but at home during my time in the state of Israel. Wow, beautiful description and very understandable given the circumstances. Now, do you now reside in Israel currently or do you reside stateside here in the U.S.? Or So I reside in the state of Israel. I'm a citizen of the state of Israel. In 2020, I spent from the time the pandemic hit until the present day in the United States of America. That's the result of my work commitments through the Miriam Institute. It made a lot more sense to be in one place. Also, the idea of international travel became increasingly difficult and the idea of planning became increasingly difficult just as a result of COVID-19 but I fully plan to go home once the world starts turning again so I'm a resident and a citizen of the state of Israel and I'm also a citizen of the United Kingdom. Given your unique perspective having grown up much of your life inside the United Kingdom having made is it Haliyah am I saying that correctly when you moved to Israel? Aliyah, yes. Uh, Aliyah. There's an interesting note about that, if I may say so. Yes, Making indeed. Aliyah speaks to the move to the states of Israel, but it actually speaks to a spiritual ascendance. Mm. So Aliyah means to, it means ascent. When one moves to the states of Israel, they're said to ascend. Of course, they're not ascending in a geographical sense necessarily, but they are said to be ascending spiritually as Jews if they move to the state of Israel. Hence the word Aliyah, ascendance to Israel. Wow, beautifully said. And, you know, and that kind of segues well into my next question, which is for, and of course, I'm speaking as someone who's never personally visited Israel, but is obviously very pro-Jewish, pro-Israeli. It does seem in particular when you view the Israeli state's pronouncements towards its foreign policy, towards its existence, that there is on a national level, a parallel to the fulfillment that you felt when you first donned that uniform that could reconcile 
what has long been a very suppressed people, very persecuted people, with a full embrace of that identity, someplace that is that is far more secure than anything experienced by the Jewish people in, in recent memory, possibly in all time. That spiritual heritage, though, you know, Israel did not begin in the 1940s. It was recreated as a political state on the map in the 1940s, but its history is ancient. And when I've looked through your own past story as well, doing research, I noticed that you were a combat reservist and a veteran of service, not only in the Second Lebanon War, but also in the Operation Pillar of Defense and Operation Protective Edge. Yes, that's correct. And in Pillar of Defense, if I'm understanding correctly, the actual the Hebrew words for that is reference to the Pillar of Cloud in the Exodus, where the Yahweh led the people out into the wilderness from Egypt. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That refers to the the pillar of cloud, as you mentioned, that led the Jewish people throughout the wilderness. And it's the code name that was given to the operation inside the Gaza Strip and also in Judea and Samaria. And I should emphasize that during Operation Pillar of Defense and Operation Protective Edge, I was sent to Judea and Samaria, not to the Gaza Strip. But yes, the point that you're making about the state of Israel is an important one. In the modern era, because the state of Israel, as a result of its Jewish character, unjustly and unfortunately faces enmity around its borders and constant threats to its security, that fact renders a great many people believing that the legitimacy for the state of Israel is born of the idea that the Jewish people are entitled to security. Now, I would argue that's a byproduct of the existence of the state of Israel, but there, within those borders, we are indeed a secure people. However, we didn't go back to the state of Israel and return unto Zion because we were seeking security. We went back to our ancestral homeland that I am actually of the viewpoint was sworn unto our forefathers by God. It's the idea of... Unto Abraham, correct? That's correct. It's the idea of that ancestral homeland that we might at once, at some point, have the opportunity to reconstitute that, that homeland that has sustained us through some of the darkest periods, not only in Jewish history, but in, in the history of humankind. And that should not be forgotten. And that idea is one of the reasons that I remain completely opposed Just as an example, and I'm more than willing to give a platform to contrary voices and opinions on this matter, I do that. We proudly welcome that debate at the Miriam Institute, and people can look at miriaminstitute.org and see just how ready we are to hear different viewpoints, including viewpoints that are contrary to my own. But it's as a result of that religious context that I remain in all ways, shape and form opposed to the idea that it's a sensible policy to cede any of the land of Israel to another people. I think that that's a grave error. And that would be a reference to the so-called two-state solution, as they say in the West, regarding the Palestinian situation, correct? It would certainly be in reference to the two-state solution, but it would be in reference to any solution that calls upon the states of Israel to cede land. I I just think it's a completely preposterous idea. It's never worked. It's exceptionally dangerous. And I... I am opposed to that. Now, I'm also a bit of a strange cat here because the reality, Garrison, is I'm very dedicated to the idea of establishing an an independent sovereign state for the Palestinian Arabs. But that state must not be brought about at the expense of or to the detriment of the one and only Jewish state. 
and that includes to the territorial detriment of the one around the Jewish state. In my view, land, no land, should be ceded in order to establish a state for the Palestinian Arabs. And now, when you say land in particular, just because this gets into the geopolitics, which listeners of this podcast are obviously quite interested in, would you be referencing the Gaza Strip as well as the West Bank, or do you have other lands in mind as well? I'd like to kind of unpack those views, if you don't mind exploring them. Yeah, so I don't believe under any circumstances that a state for the Palestinian Arabs should be established in Judea and Samaria. I think that would be a grave error. It's a grave error because it would cut away at the heartland of Jewish history, the geographical heartland of Jewish history. That history is predicated in no small part upon our presence in Judea and Samaria. And I think it would be, as I said, a grave error to cut that away from the rest of the story of, of Israel. In addition to that, I think it would leave us in a very precarious security position. It would give the elevated topographical advantage of the land to the Palestinian Arabs and, frankly, to all countries east of the state of Israel, all the way to Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan. And I don't think the state of Israel should be asked or expected and certainly shouldn't agitate to place itself in such a precarious situation. I do believe that actually an independent, viable, thriving, sovereign, free state for the Palestinian Arabs can be established in the Gaza Strip mm. Mm. with contiguity into the Sinai Peninsula. I believe that a truly independent, sovereign state is something that the state of Israel should focus on helping to facilitate and to birth for the Palestinian Arabs but it should not be at the cost of a single inch of Israeli territory. I don't say that rhetorically. I mean it. I mean it when I say a single inch. I mean that literally. I don't think anything should be given away to the Palestinian Arabs. But I do believe that there are opportunities to convert or invert Gaza from being an intractable problem to being a central part of the solution to this challenge of building a homeland for the Palestinian Arabs. I believe that if we can anchor a state in the Gaza Strip, and then expand it into the territory of the Sinai Peninsula, which abets the Gaza Strip and obviously is under the custodianship and the rule and the governance of the Egyptians, I believe that there you can have a state. You know, there is some geopolitical context as well for thriving states existing as a sort of an enclave, as you might mention, from the Gaza Strip if you look at the topic of Singapore in East Asia, obviously a highly developed and very successful state that really is little more than a city in terms of its actual zoning. Perhaps some model like that could work as well. But now turning more to the eastern half of Israel, the West Bank, how did it strike you as someone with your know, particular views on this uh, issue of Israeli security and, and the land distribution and so on and the, the birthright to the area? How is your approach towards the Trump administration's announcement of the moving of the United States embassy to Jerusalem, which of course does not obviously change anyone's perspective, the views are already held, but just that formalization, that acknowledgement that the United States is reorienting its posture towards Jerusalem as the, as the central spiritual capital, if you will, of the state of Israel. How does that fit inside your, your views on the ground as well as your, your philosophy towards the subject? Well, I was very, very pleased to, of course, hear the pronouncement and then see the ratification of the idea that West Jerusalem would serve as the site for the Embassy of the United States of America. I think that was a wonderful, wonderful development. I think it was a very blessed development. I think that it spoke to the pro 
Israel dint of the Trump administration. And I applaud it. I think it's wonderful news. Of course, I couch that in the, the truth that the capital city of the state of Israel is affixed by the state of Israel. It's not affixed by anybody else, including a great ally such as the United States of America. Indeed. But to have the support of the United States of America behind that idea and to have the endorsements, if you like, of that idea by the only superpower in the world today and by such a staunch ally can only be viewed as a positive development. However, I will share with you that in my opinion, and again, here I'm a bit of an outlier, but I, it is my viewpoint and it's my viewpoint. You've kindly offered me a platform. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I have you today. here. Yes. Yeah. So, so I must tell you that the peace plan unveiled by the Trump administration, in my view, was wholly, wholly unacceptable. I think it was the most troubling peace plan ever presented. Really? And, and you mind unpacking what some of that was? I'm very fascinated. Maybe some of your top, yeah. top concerns. Yeah. yeah, absolutely I will. So first of all, I should express to you that I personally was very engaged in advising the relevant individuals within the Trump administration on their Israel-Palestinian policy. I won't claim to have had a monopoly on doing so far from it, but I regularly was involved in an advisory capacity throughout not only the administration in the period from coming to serve as an administration to the unveiling of the peace plan, but also during the campaign as well. So that's, I speak from a point of particular intimacy and involvement on this issue. And I can tell you that during its time as a campaign while running for office, the Trump campaign expressed to me very, very clearly that candidate Trump had no interest in the two-state solution and they wanted to know if there were any alternatives. And I expressed to them that there is an alternative. It's an alternative that I, I founded. It's an alternative that I promote and it's an alternative about which I spoke to the administration when it became an administration and that is called the new state solution and the new state solution is what i referred to earlier garrison it's the establishment of a state for the palestinian arabs in gaza with contiguity into the sinai peninsula now people can look at that solution they can go to the miriam institute and go to the new state solution tab under the initiatives tab you can also and i'll, I'll include a link to that solution. in the show notes as well so that yep. people can get there easily yes yep you you can certainly do that but the reality of the matter is that at the unveiling of that plan president trump stood up and said this plan avoids any partition or division of jerusalem i'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said yes. he said something along the lines of this plan avoids any future partition or division of jerusalem and then i opened the plan and i read the plan and this this of course is what most people don't do most people just listen to rhetoric they don't actually analyze what's written down yes. and right there Indeed. in the plan subject to certain caveats and conditions it says very very clearly that areas of east jerusalem can become the capital for a future palestinian state and that that capital can be referred to by the name al-quds which is the arabic for jerusalem so that's number mm -hmm. one the plan calls for the partition of jerusalem that's not acceptable to me 
Part number two, objection number two, is it openly calls for the establishment of a state for the Palestinian Arabs in Judea and Samaria. It doesn't mm. call for anything less than that. It calls for the establishment of the state in Judea and Samaria. Which, as you Part mentioned, is already the, the heartland of uh, the historic state of Israel, the ancestral home of Israel. Absolutely. Yes, yes. It's absolutely the heartland of, of the state of Israel. And... It also calls for land concessions. It doesn't call for Jewish people to be removed from their homes, but it, in my opinion, it calls for something even worse. And I think the removal of Jews from their homes is an egregious idea. But in my opinion, it calls for something even worse. It calls for the idea that Jewish people can stay in their homes where they are in Judea and Samaria. But if they happen to be living in territories that ultimately will become part of the Palestinian state, well, they can live under the Palestinian flag. Jewish mm -hmm. people did not make Aliyah to Judea and Samaria in order to live under Palestinian nor did they That's assault really nor did they survive multiple assaults throughout the 20th century absolutely. from all sides unprovoked assaults you know to to have that outcome absolutely so that was another egregious idea completely detached from the reality of what will actually happen to Jewish people living under Palestinian sovereignty were that ever to come about and finally finally it called for the expansion of the Gaza Strip which at the moment is a terror enclave but it didn't call for the expansion of the Strip as I call for it into the Sinai Peninsula, which is Egyptian land. It actually calls for the expansion of the Gaza Strip into Israeli land in the area of the Negev Desert and the Padran Desert and in areas that Israeli farmers cultivate, in areas that have been ensnared by this terror enclave of the Gaza Strip for the past several years. And all of those things together, I find, render it the most anti-Israel plan, quite frankly, put forward by anybody in recent times. It's far, far worse mm. than what most people would call the two-state solution. And the most offensive aspect of it, to my particular leanings, is the fact that something was said, namely that it would not call for land concessions, the partition of Jerusalem and so forth, but another thing entirely was written. And that, to me, is a, is a dreadful, a dreadful act of misdirection. There's, and, and there's duplicity to it, isn't there? Yes, there is, and people need to look at that. And I think, personally, that any anybody who is willing to put forward a plan like that, frankly, undoes all of the good work that they did by way of naming the embassy, recognizing the embassy, and, and even recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. These are important symbolic measures. They're important and they are to be applauded. But if, if they come at the cost, if the quid, okay, is recognizing West Jerusalem as Israel's capital and recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, the quo cannot be that the states of Israel must now have Jerusalem partitioned, Al-Quds can be established there, a Palestinian Arab state will be established in Judea and Samaria, and you will give further land along the Gaza Strip, and you will also agree to the idea that Jewish people living in Judea and Samaria may well end up living their lives under a Palestinian flag, under Palestinian rule. That's not acceptable to me. No, indeed, that would definitely render the state of Israel much more of a an amoebic-looking confederation of, of patchwork zones that would hardly be capable of being defended readily or, or readily lived, and not to mention that it would 
just not be uh, coherent with the history of the land or, or of the people involved. I did want to follow up as someone who is clearly at the, the forefront of discussions involving Israel on the global stage. And as you said, uh, involved in briefings to the president of the United States, uh, you know, co-founder and CEO of this institute and its, its great work that it's doing. And with the unique experiences, particularly from a Western perspective, an experience that even many American Jews or British Jews have never had, which is to serve under the flag of Israel in its defense of its homeland, having that background in the United Kingdom, having such a terrible personal experience happen to a member of your own family, and coming full circle now to being an advocate for Israel on the global stage, We've just witnessed Britain exit the European Union and begin what Prime Minister Boris Johnson has called a a global Britain, a state that will once again pursue its aspirations on the global stage. Given your life story and your unique perspective, what is an outcome you would like to see, if you have one, I'm assuming you might, for future of Israel and UK relations that would be kind of your ideal to see the tensions of the past, the wrongs of the past, righted into a a new friendship and partnership going forward, productive for both states, but particularly for the Jewish state? Well, I don't think that the future is bright for relations between the United Kingdom and the states of Israel. I think that they're going to become increasingly, increasingly strained. Mm. And the reason for that is, is quite straightforward. The United Kingdom has, and it's as is its sovereign right to do has operated a very very lax program for immigration Mm. into its borders and the reality of the matter is that many of those who have decided to build a life in the united kingdom are not positively predisposed to anything jewish and certainly to anything israeli related perhaps Sadiq khan or you know jeremy corbyn on a homegrown front if you will yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, much more than Sadiq Khan, I, I would reference somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, but, but Jeremy Corbyn, of course, is not a recent immigrant to the United Kingdom. No, no, indeed. If you look, and, and before anybody should accuse me of, of such, I'm not referring to people of a particular religious dint, I'm not pre- referring to people of a particular cultural dint, whether it be people who have come into the United Kingdom from Europe, or whether it be people who have come to the United Kingdom from other continents and other geographical areas, the vast majority of the countries from which the immigrant population is arriving are not countries that are positively predisposed to the Jewish people or to the state of Israel. Europe has a dreadful history with the Jewish people and with the state of Israel. Those who are building new lives in the United Kingdom and who come from those European countries cast a vote and that vote is unlikely to go unlikely to go to the individual seeking office who is most overtly pro-israel it's Hmm. likely to go in the other direction and so that that's my view on it i also think britain has a, a great challenge which is to define its own identity to its immigrant class it needs to define what it is to be british what being British means it's not my business to tell them how to do that, but they do need to somehow wrap their heads around their own identities so that those who come to the United Kingdom with different cultures, with different backgrounds, with different religious perspectives, as did my own grandfather. My own grandfather was a deeply, deeply orthodox, traditional Jew. He was born in Poland. He moved to England from Berlin in Germany just prior to the Second World War, just prior to the Holocaust. 
and he managed to reconcile his religious views, his cultural views, and his Britishness all in one. And I think that that should be expected of anybody who moves into the United Kingdom, because at the moment what's happening is British identity is entirely subjugated in order to accommodate the, the immigrant class, uh, those who are militantly minded, those who are unwilling to take on the characteristics and the traits of, of Britishness. Of course, many, many individuals who come, come in celebration of, of the opportunity to become more British and to comply with the laws, regulations of the land of the UK. But there are those who are not of that viewpoint. And I think one of the challenges for Britain is to at once ask the more militant elements of the immigrant community to, to cast aside uh, some of their traditions and ideas, while also expressing to them what the ideas are that they should receive as part of their new British identity. And I don't think Britain's doing a good job of expressing that. Hopefully they can adjust to those challenges that they're facing in a way that would be positive and productive, like you have suggested. You know, I could keep you on and talk for hours about these subjects, but unfortunately, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up in, in the interest of time. But I do want to say thank you very much to you, sir, for coming on board the podcast, for sharing of your life, which has been quite varied, quite successful, and very influential, and remains still influential well into the future. And we appreciate you coming on the new Diplomatist podcast, and hopefully I can have you again on some time in the future to, to further discuss matters as they arise. Thank you very much, Garrison. I want to wish you every success with your podcast, and I do mean this sincerely. I am happy to appear on your podcast any time you like. Please oh, just let me know. That. This does not have to be the end of the conversation. I look forward to many more fruitful conversations together. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir.